Rise and shine. <laughs> You're in trouble now. You're gonna burn. Yeah, my pa's coming for me. He learned how to kill a man good and slow in the war. I am gonna watch you suffer for a long, long time. You, you thought, you thought that cheap shot from Pecker hurt, huh? and welcome back to another episode of Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that lost the cinematic gunfight. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Brokeback Mountaineer, Andrew Phillips. Oh, hey there. You want to get up on my saddle? (laughs) And in our second of three Star Wars themed episodes, we're traveling way back west to a time when men were forged against a backdrop of harsh elements, endless gunfights, and violent gold-seeking aliens. You got it, we watched John Favreau's Cowboys and Aliens. But first, cue the trailer. It's not your lucky day, stranger. Turn around and start walking. I said, turn around and start walking. Daniel Craig stars as ye olde Jason Bourne, an amnesiac gunslinger who slowly comes to realise he's starring in one of the biggest box office bombs of all time. John Favreau's Cowboys and Aliens follows Jake Lonergan on his quest to reclaim his memories, but in order to do so he must help a group of townspeople desperate to free their kidnapped kin from gold-seeking Nazi aliens. 
But is Cowboys and Aliens good, bad, or just plain ugly? That's what we're here to find out. Okay, so I nominated Cowboys and Aliens for our second of our Star Wars themed episodes, and it's only right I provide a little bit of reasoning as to why. The obvious comparison is that this film stars Harrison Ford, who everybody knows as Han Solo. And I thought that it would provide a nice juxtaposition since Han Solo and the character Harrison Ford plays in this film are both cowboys. They're both gunslingers. Yeah. yeah. So they're both of that same type of character mold, but Mm. completely different as well. So that's one way we're coming at it. And there's also another minor connection, and that's that Jon Favreau was actually at one point rumoured to be taking over the Star Wars Episode Seven job. Yeah. And I think that he actually publicly campaigned for it just a little bit. But he didn't get the job. Mm. And one of the questions that I want to ask as this episode goes on is, would you like to see a John Favreau Star Wars film? Is that something that you'd be interested in? But first, we need to talk about Cowboys and Aliens. Right, okay. So have you seen Cowboys and Aliens before, or is this your first duel with the film? Yeah, I've seen this film before. I actually saw this one at the cinema. Yeah? With uh, our good friend Aiden, uh, who will be on the show in a couple of months' time. He will be. And um, yeah, we thought it was all right and then we left the cinema and forgot about it it's, it's one of those ones where it was just like it was um enjoyable while we watched it but when we sort of uh gauged our reactions afterwards it was very much meh and then we went on about our daily lives and forgot about the film it kind of left that impression on me and i've not really thought about it since you actually brought it back up in terms of we we're going to do it again because i've never bought it on blu-ray or anything like that and uh, yeah i've just not thought about it since so yeah i'm very much the same i watched it when it came out in the cinema and since then i really haven't thought about it and it was only when we were looking for star wars themed episodes so we wanted to find a film that had harrison ford in that we can talk about as a forgotten film and this one pops up on the imdb list i thought oh that's a good one to do because mm. honestly it only came out in 2011 i haven't thought about it since mm-hmm I even hesitate to call it one of the more famously forgotten films. Yeah, it's because just... it's genuinely on the brink of falling into genuine obscurity. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter how recent it came out. Nobody really talks about it no. anymore. Even John Favreau's moved on to better things. Yeah, it didn't make an impact on anybody. No. The main thing that was talked about is just how badly it did at the time. Yeah. And um, barring that, I mean, you, you sometimes see it in uh, secondhand DVD and Blu-ray stores um, sitting there. I've never been tempted to buy it even though it's usually about three quid but um it's one of those ones where it's not even i've not even been tempted to buy it because it's i don't know it just didn't leave any impression on me at all at the time i bought it on blu-ray when it was released on home video and this is the first time i've watched it for this episode yeah Yeah. i've had no desire to go back to it and the version that i actually watched was the extended cut as well yeah we both watched the extended one which john favreau on the commentary calls his preferred version yeah yeah So that's the version we're going to be talking about, but I've heard that there's very little difference between them. I couldn't really pinpoint which scenes were different and which scenes weren't. Yeah, I couldn't remember. I think the version that we watch now for this, I think it has a few more character moments in it. Yeah. I remember there's a couple of things I think that were either just shortened or just lost altogether that were mainly just to do with character moments. Yeah, because this version, I will say, feels a little bit longer. But at the same time, like I say, I couldn't really pinpoint what was different and mm. what wasn't. I think yeah, some yeah. stuff with Sam Rockwell might have been added. Some some scenes between him and one of the outlaws talking to each other. I think that's the only scene that I really pointed out as yeah. being, oh, that might be new. Yeah, I'm not sure there's more stuff with 
the uh, surrogate son ah, of Adam yes. Beach's character. Yeah. But before we get into all that, everyone knows that we like to talk a little bit about the production history of our subjects on Best Forgotten Movies. I think the first thing that we have to talk about is the cast, and that Daniel Craig wasn't the original choice for the lead role in this film. Nah, he was a last-minute replacement. Yeah, he was indeed, and even the character was completely overhauled once yeah. Daniel Craig was brought on board, because it was originally tailored for Robert Downey Jr., mm. It was, in fact, something of a passion project from him. He came on board the film really quite early, even before John Favreau. Yeah. And it's only through him that John Favreau actually got involved. He brought it to John during the making of Iron Man mm. and thought this would be the type of film that he would like to make. And John jumps on board. John, should I need to keep on? <laughs> and John Favreau, the Fav, <laughs> the Fav jumps on board. Yeah, but the origins of this film go back a lot further than that it actually goes back to 1997 yes when um scott mitchell rosenberg of malibu comics they did a um like a one sheet comic spread yeah for cowboys and aliens and that got bought by universal and dreamworks they um were developing it in the late 90s with a lovely director called steve odekirk famed for nutty professor 2 the Clumps. Yeah, and this would have been the film that he would have made after The Clumps came out, and he was developing this concurrently. Obviously, ultimately, he jumped off the project beforehand. He wanted to go and do another film with Jim Carrey, I think. Yes, I've got actually the name of the film Something here. Something Mr. Limpet? Yeah, he wanted to do a remake of The Incredible Mr. Limpet with Jim Carrey, and that is another film that actually didn't get made at the yeah. time. Yes. It's weird that he was actually involved at this point, because... Although some may say that he escaped this bomb, <laughs> but he did go on to direct Evan Almighty. Wow. Which is one of the biggest comedy bombs of all yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, probably lost more money than this did. I, I, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. And I think it just went dormant then. And um, I think just Universal sat on it for a while. And uh, then it got bought up by Columbia. Mm-hmm. And they developed it for a while. And then they just sat on it again. And then it got published as a graphic novel. Yeah. In 2006, I'd imagine they just got impatient and went, ah, oh, fuck it, let's just release something. And, and it's not the uh, first time we've covered a film that's actually taken this route either, yeah, because yeah. Virus did as well. Yeah, absolutely. That other successful film. Mm. And because the graphic novel was pretty popular, that basically forced Universal and DreamWorks to buy back the rights mm. to the film and then start developing it more seriously, and that's where everything starts to get into gear around about 2007. Yes. I have actually read the graphic novel, and let's just say it's very bare. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very quick read, and there's really not much to it beyond the Cowboys and Aliens title. Yeah. If you want to see Cowboys and Aliens fighting, that's what you're going to see in the comic book, but there's not really much of a story. So, so it's really much a, something that they've brought out to generate interest in the yeah. project. it feels like it's part of a pitch. Yeah, yeah. And... Yeah. Although there are some elements in the story that do go on to influence what's in the film, mm. much like the comic book, they don't make use of it in the film. But we'll get into that later. Yeah. We sort of fast forward to June 2008, and this is where Danny Jr. enters the picture. Mm-hmm. He signs to play a character called Zeke Jackson, who is apparently a Union Army gunslinger. Yeah. Yeah, and this is where Favreau comes on board because they were making Iron Man 2. Mm-hmm. Danny Jean had already signed to this other film and then he was obviously talking about it with him on set and then got him interested in the project and then he started to pursue the job of being director on it. And it was around that point that Downey Jr. 
actually had to leave the production as well. Yeah. Because Sherlock Holmes came out and was something of a success. I mean, it made five hundred million at the box office. Almost like a surprise success. Yeah, really. because it was in the shadow of Avatar. It was yeah. released around the same week, yeah. and it still managed to make quite a bit of money. Mm. So all of a sudden, Downey Jr. was off to do Sherlock Holmes too. At the same point that Cowboys and Aliens was due to start yeah. filming, then enters Daniel Craig. Danny Jr. leaves around about January 2010. Daniel Craig gets cast later that month. So he must have left (laughs) literally like first thing in the new year. And then Daniel Craig got cast by the end of January. So it was a very quick changeover. I imagine once Sherlock Holmes had came out in that first week on around Christmas, they would have known straight away that it wouldn't have been happening for Danny Jr. Yeah, definitely. Going back to Favreau, I think he would have actively got on this project because one it was something different for him but it was still a big studio film yeah. but also given his experiences on Iron Man 2 and the experience of making that and obviously the resulting product I think he was very much sort of off put by making another film for Marvel yeah. at that time because I know he had a lot of difficulties making Iron Man 2 he did because he wanted to make an Iron Man movie but they wanted to make a trailer for the Avengers yes and that's what the film ended up being it just ended up being a trailer for what's to come. Mm. Much to the disappointment of John Favreau. Yeah, and three films, really, that were released just before Avengers came out. So Iron Man 2, Captain America, First Avenger, and Thor, they all suffer from being a trailer for the Avengers. I think Thor's probably the only one that really gets away with it. Yeah, because it doesn't deal with it as much as yeah. the others. But even so, it's got some shoehorned elements yeah. into the story and, just to um, tie into the Avengers. And Captain America for the first half, but the second half just fast forwards to the end just to get to yeah. being in the Avengers, which is a real shame. Captain America really suffers in trying to get Captain America to the present day. Yeah. It kind of just has to pummel through the entire story just to get him to that point. Whereas that really needed to be a film another of film. Yeah. yeah, it needed to be another film. And uh, yeah, unfortunately it didn't. But um, yeah, so I think Favreau was fed up working in that model and wanted something different anyway mm-hmm. and uh, maybe wanted a bit more control on the uh, the final product so he actively pursued this project and got it and then yeah this whole thing with Danny Jr. leaving so they had to make some quick changes but what happened was maybe for them at the time must have worked out much better on paper because uh, within two months of signing Craig they also got Harrison Ford so you almost had that perfect marriage of James Bond and Indiana Jones. Yeah, which we have seen once before. Yeah, which on paper looks great. It does. So they actually start shooting in June, I think. Yeah. They shoot June to September yeah. 2010. And during this time, the script is in flux somewhat because we've got characters changing as well. Daniel Craig comes on board and all of a sudden it's not Zeke Jackson anymore. Yeah. It's Jake Lonergan. Yeah. Which is a very Damon Lindelof name for me because his names are always straight on the nose. Loner gun. Yeah. You know, it's like a, he's a loner. Yeah. He's, he has a gun. Yep. He's a lone gunman. Yeah, it's a bit rubbish, isn't it, really? Yeah. To be honest, I wasn't that much of a fan of Zeke Jackson either. No. (laughs) I suppose Jake Lonergan's a slight step up from that. He sounds like the long-lost brother from the Jackson family. Yeah, I prefer some of the other character names more. Yeah. I mean, they made a couple of casting changes based on actors coming through as well, like the the character of the Doc was originally written as a large Mexican fellow. And uh, as soon as Rockwell, Sam Rockwell, got interested in the film, and in that role, they cast him and his role was expanded. 
it just seems a bit weird. I mean, it was yeah. still in that kind of I old think school mentality of filmmaking there. It is. But I, I hope it's just because it's Sam Rockwell. Oh, yeah. And but, because of the type of actor he is. It's more like the situation that we saw with the island of Dr. Moreau, mm. where Val Kilmer jumps on board for a character that was supposed to be rather minor. And yeah. then suddenly they had to expand it because it was Val Kilmer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that's it because... Even in this film, I know we're going to speak about it later, but Sam Rockwell's character doesn't really have much to do. No. Other than be snarky and uh, something of a comic relief. Yeah, and his arc is the most obvious thing in the world. Yeah. It's phoned in straight from the off. Straight from the moment we see him. Yeah, the script goes through quite a few changes, and we'll go on that a bit later in terms of the development of the screenplays. And I say screenplays in the plural because there were many different versions of this film. Very many. Because for me, and we'll go and talk about this later when we talk about the results, it just feels like they have these two words, cowboys and aliens, and then they just do something with that. There's no other clear foundation other than the title. Even when we think about how this film has been knocked from pillar to post, from studio to studio... Even back then, all they had was the name. Yeah, they bought the name. and Aliens. And it's very strange that actually, as we talk about this film, we're going to find out that the name was something of a detriment for the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially with the type of film that they decided on making. They couldn't mm. really get past how goofy the name sounded. Yeah, it's like Snakes on a Plane. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, this is much better than Snakes on a Plane, but I know Snakes on a Plane, they were not trying to be good. Yeah. And it kind of made something of it because of that. Yeah. But um, Snakes on a Plane was a working title. Yeah. They always wanted to call it something else. I mean, at one point it was called Flights and then it had a number, which yeah, is just yeah. a, such a boring name. Yeah. But Samuel Jackson signed on that film to say, you're calling it Snakes on a Plane. If I'm going to be in this film, it's going to be called Snakes on yeah. a Plane. <laughs> and I've got to say, the snakes on this plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a part of my contract. Yeah. But. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they had the similar situation with this. It's like they just bought the name and they could do whatever they want with it, but they never had a clear enough... There was no other foundation there other than mm. the fact that it was cowboys versus aliens. And there was no clear vision. No. Or a clear intention as well. Yeah. There's no, like, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Other than the fact, oh yeah, cowboys and aliens, so cool. It feels weird that the studio would have bought something based on a one-sheet anyway without having anything else there. We still see that today, though, as yeah. well. I remember not too long ago, the rights for a small panel comic strip Mm. was actually bought up by a studio. And I think it was only a three-panel strip. (laughs) And it was about some kid going to school in space. That was it. That was the extent of the strip where it went. And studios bought it up because it gained some popularity online. So we still do see this today where it's just the bare bones of, of something, of an idea. They'll just buy it up because... Why not? It's intellectual property. Because somebody else <laughs> might. Because, yeah, we used to get this with books and novels. Yeah. But now it just seems to be with titles or games or mm-hmm. anything like that. It, it, whether or not it has any kind of foundation, anything that has legs, they'll just buy it because it's a name and people may like it. Yeah. Now we're getting to a point where it's board games as yeah. well. Yeah. Like we've, and we've, sets like Lego and, and brands like Minecraft. Well, we've got Cluedo the movie coming out. Yeah. We? <laughs> we have so, a Monopoly that's gone yeah. back into production, which is strange. I just don't know how they're going to make a film out of that. Imagine it'd be something like Wall Street. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and you know they're going to make some Western film about Buckaroo. Oh, of course. The horse called Buckaroo. For me, I'm waiting for Operation. <laughs> I'm waiting for Cards Against Humanity. Yeah. You know what I reckon we should buy? 
Trivial Pursuit, the movie. It's done. Yeah. It's done. Mind I'm on the games. phone now. Mind games. <laughs> yes, you have to answer these questions on the board if you'll die. But um, yeah, we'll make a horror the film. Trivial out. Pursuit trivial Killer. Trivial Pursuit Killer, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I want to play a game. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we... Who starred in this 1984 action film? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think all the problems begin and end with this name. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that didn't give them any solid foundations and it's also the thing that killed the film in the end yeah it's very strange because i, I do actually see some potential in the name about making a film a sci-fi film a western sci-fi film I, I i like that as a genre being spliced together we've not really seen that done in this way before mm. i mean we know we've got sci-fi films that have western elements like star wars for instance mm. that has some fantasy and western elements about it yeah but we haven't really seen sci-fi done in a western setting. No. Unfortunately, this film doesn't really it doesn't really bank on that at all. No. Obviously, because DreamWorks were one of the parties that bought the rights to this film, it's um gonna have some level of involvement by Steven Spielberg. Of course. And uh, he came on as one of the executive producers, among many. In a weird way, I kind of feel, and we'll go into when we talk about the style of this film and where they went with it. A lot of the feel of this film was actually probably dictated by Spielberg himself because he was the one that took Favreau under his wing, really, and sort of almost gave him a bit of a, a boot camp on Westerns and yeah. how Westerns should be made and what makes a good Western. And he had a lot of private screenings, um, had a couple of ideas on the actual story and what should happen. And, uh, yeah, he seemed to be quite passionate about the Western aspect of this film. And I think like we were saying before we started, being passionate about the Western aspects of the film, the Cowboys side of it, is often detrimental to the Aliens side of it. Yeah. It seems as if John Farrow really fell in love with the idea of making a Western. And I think that's the thing that really attracted him. And what he wanted to make of the film was to make a really good Western. Yeah. With these sci-fi elements. And that's very much what the film is. It's a Western with a bit of sci-fi in there. Yeah, it is. And... I found myself asking more than once why it wasn't just a Western. Yeah, definitely. Because that's clearly the type of film that everybody involved wanted to make. Yeah. But they were saddled with this alien element. It felt like, oh, we've got to make this Western with the sci-fi elements in because that's the only way it's going to sell and the only yeah. way it's going to get made because we can't just make a Western anymore, not on this amount of money. No, no. So, and not with this cast either. Yeah, we're lumbered with this bungled sci-fi plot in order to make this western which we're really making because there's hardly any sci-fi elements in this film at all yeah and uh yeah anything that is sci-fi in this is very much off in the distance and half-baked well westerns by themselves as well are not bankable anymore no i think the last big budget western that we had other than cowboys and aliens if it can be called a true western it was um, 310 to Yuma. And yeah. I remember even that failed at the box office. Yeah. So the Western really hasn't been a bankable genre for some time. So I guess the only thing that the studio can say about making a Western is it's got to have something else going for it. It's got to have some kind of fantasy or sci-fi element going on for it because that's what's in at the moment. Yeah. Which is or, a shame, really. Yeah. We do get some low-budget Westerns, yeah. like Bone Tomahawk has just come out recently. And I want yeah. to really champion that film for a moment. I watched it just the other day and it was fantastic. Very gritty, very gory, nice and slow. The type of Western I like. Mm. But um, we don't see them on this level anymore, when yeah. at one point they were the big budget temples. Yeah. Was that new Tommy Lee Jones film or Western? The Holmesman? Yeah. 
Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. but, but again, it's, it's, it's a much a low budget, smaller yeah. film. We've not really had a massive western since Unforgiven, really. No, not a not, massive. Not one, not really. one that's actually landed with no. the public. No. no, Dances with Wolves a bit. Yeah, I'd say no. I'd say it's a western. It's got cowboys yeah. and it's got Indians in it. Let's say. Yeah, but yeah, they're just not bankable anymore, and it's um. It's weird why not, because, yeah, again, when we're talking about a lot of these other things, there's so many other films that just take the Western scenario wholesale, but then just put it in a different setting, and it seems to do really well. Yeah. And yet, when you do a Western, people don't want to put money into it or anything. It's, it's odd, because, to be honest, like, yeah, you've got all the Western cliches, but the basic premise of a Western, uh, you're talking about a a world where there's no laws. Yeah. And everything's just, like much more primitive and everyone's the idea that it's every man for himself that's the appeal mm-hmm. of the western and you can do so much within that world yeah and a lot of themes you can play on as well about you know racism and violence and there's so mm-hmm. many things you can you can make a western out of. yeah you can talk about industry as well yeah the railroad has a lot to say about taming the west mm. okay so as we've talked about this film includes the likes of harrison ford and daniel craig and john favreau it's really a wealth of talent but does this talent come together to form a solid blockbuster or is this sci-fi western unforgiving in its dullness and leave <laughs> us searching for our thrills elsewhere? Yeah. It's time for us to really start talking about the film. So first off, just got to ask, just a nice brief opinion. What did you think of Cowboys and Aliens? It goes back to that similar reaction that I had when I first watched the film. I really enjoyed it when I watched it, but even now sitting here and talking about it, it hasn't left any lasting impression on me. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of things I kind of felt that the uh, extended cut is a little bit stronger than the theatrical. For me, watching it this morning, it felt better than it did when I first watched it. Yeah. But again, it still... It lacked... Like, impact. Yeah. There was that element that was missing. From yeah. Because it. it looks nice. It looks beautiful. Performances are really good. It's a very well-made film. Yeah. Like, technically, it's well-made. And I like the intentions of what they were going for, but there is something intrinsically wrong with it. And it goes back to them trying to mash up these two genres and it not being entirely successful. In trying to splice these genres, it becomes neither. Mm-hmm. It neither becomes a good Western or a good sci-fi film, but it becomes just very in the middle. Yeah, they, means they miss the balance. Yeah, which means it's middle of the road in both areas. Mm-hmm. A good comparison, I mean, this is a much, much worse film, but... A good comparison would be Krull, where they mm-hmm. try and merge the fantasy genre with the sci-fi, sci-fi genre, yeah. and uh, doesn't work at all in that case. But it's of quite a similar situation. I mean, they even have the, a similar-looking ship mm-hmm. in the in a canyon, like they're doing Krull, and uh, people are on horseback, and it's very much old world versus this high-technology alien villain that's come in and landed on their planet. And it's how they deal with that. So it is a very similar situation. I think Cowboys and Alien deals with it better, but they still fall into some of the same traps that Krull did. And it can't quite work out what it wants to be. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but one of the first things that I really need to hammer home about this film is that I actually did enjoy it while I was watching it. And I only say that straight off the bat because... It's going to sound like we're coming down really hard on this no, film. No, because I said I, re- I enjoyed it when I was watching it. Yeah, well, I did. Th- that's it, because we're going to start talking about the film's flaws soon. 
and there are yeah. many flaws to talk about. There's certainly not lacking in things to talk about where this movie went wrong, but I really want to just say that, yeah, it is an enjoyable watch, and I did enjoy watching it. It drags in a few parts. There is some dullness here and there. There are characters that go nowhere, but overall, it's rather inoffensive popcorn thrills, really. Mm. You'll have an all right time. You'll have a fun time. You just will forget it immediately after. And I watched it twice before recording this episode i watched it once just the film and then i watched it with the commentary on with john favreau so it should be fresh in my mind but already (laughs) i'm hazy on a couple of things so i'm looking forward to actually starting to talk about it but like i say it's going to sound like we're being really down on the film but it is enjoyable okay so i think the first thing we need to start about is the thing that we've been avoiding all this time yeah it's the elephant in the room we need to start talking about the script Yes, And just how many writers have at one point been involved in this project during its many various different iterations? Because the development of this film was so long and it kept being passed into different studios' hands, there's quite a long list of writers who wrote different versions of this script, pretty much just based on this title. There's not much that connects the different scripts together, which really means they didn't really have a, a strong enough central concept in order to go off other than this fucking title and um so my first section of writers is uh, labeled pre-2007 because it's really 2007 where the development of the film that we see yeah really starts but pre-2007 we obviously have steve odekirk who wrote his own version for when he was going to direct the film yes and then i think most of the other writers come from when columbia had the film and we've got uh, david hater thomas dean donnelly joshua oppenheimer jeffrey baum of Indiana Jones and Inner Space fame. We've got uh, Thompson Evans, and then we've got Chris Horty. I'm not sure there's any more that you found. There's probably a couple more that worked on this film at some point. But yeah, no, no, I've, I've got the same as well. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can add, really, is that David Hayter is actually the voice of Solid Snake and was in demand in the 90s because I think he wrote the X-Men movies as well, the first ah, two. Ah, right, okay. And he also went on to provide the Paul Greengrass draft of Watchmen. Yeah. Which many have considered to be the better version. Yeah. Who have read it. Yeah. So don't be a David hater hater. (laughs) He seems quite a good chap. But um, my post 2007 list, which um, obviously is the current Universal DreamWorks production that we're reviewing today. Yep. Their original writers were Hawk Osby. Lovely, interesting name there. And uh, Mark Fergus. They still have a story credit, don't they? Yeah, the they have a story credit which they share with Steve Odekirk. Yeah. So it must, must be playing be with elements some elements. There, yeah. But the final screenplay is credited to that celebrated, wonderful writing partnership of Robert Orsi, Alex Kurtzman, and the sublime Damon Lindelof. <laughs> one of my favourite writers of all time. Oh, by far. Yes. And actually, Mark Fergus and Hawk Ortsby still got screenwriting credit as well. Mm. So in all, it's... Well, if you include five, Steve um, Odekirk... Oh, so six credited writers. Six credited writers over eight different credits. Yeah. You always know a film's in trouble when you have <laughs> six credited writers on the screenplay. Yeah. I mean... Uh, when it yeah. needs two like title pages to show you to be just a, how yeah. many people have wrote it, that's when you know you're in trouble. Really, it should be no more than four... And they draw and the line really at four. I mean, that's the absolute <laughs> upper echelon yeah. of how many credited writers. One's fine, obviously. Two's fine. Three's okay if it's yeah. like a rewrite of somebody else's team. I mean, you usually get three sometimes. Somebody comes in for a last-minute script edit, yeah. not normally credited, but that happens a lot. Yeah. But, um, yeah, six writers is just silly. 
I'd say even at four, I would start worrying about a film. Yeah, and the fact that this has six is yeah, just and, and this unfathomable. Is you, and this is where you get clear lack of focus because yeah. there's no one person's vision on this, which is why it ends up being a little bit of everything. Yeah, and Ortsy and Kurtzman were quite heavily involved in many aspects of the film, both in who was hired and for what jobs, because they actually share producer credits on the film, yeah. like most of the films that they're involved in. And many know them from the Star Trek films, the new mm-hmm. ones that say Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness. Lindelof worked with them on Into Darkness. They yeah, also they... rebooted Spider-Man as well for yeah. um, Sony. So they're in demand, but they're not exactly getting favourable responses from fans and well, critics. Are they in demand now? Well, they're working on the Universal Cinematic Monster. Well, at least Alex Kurtzman is. Yeah, working on the Marvel Cinematic Monster. I don't know movie. what Robert Orsi's doing now. He got I don't know. Ousted from the the Star Trek Three. Yeah, he was kind of pushed out of the Star Trek family, really. Yeah, and I've heard that. Thank God, people had a hard time working with him. Yeah, that's just from the rumor mill. I, I don't know the yeah. guy. Allegedly, I'm going to say, but apparently, he was reportedly hard to work with. Yeah, I remember was it Red Letter Media they made up that story that uh, he must have um, read his own script and went, I'm not directing this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make like any that. sense. I like that. He walked up his own film yeah. and he read his own script. <laughs> the calibre of writers here isn't particularly strong. To be honest, we fall into the same trap again as well because unsurprisingly for me, the uh, third act is the one that's the weakest. Yeah, and this is uh, always seems to be the Achilles heel of all three of these writers, and that the third act is always rather disappointing, mm-hmm. especially in terms of Mr. Lindelof. Yeah, uh, there's an issue with Damon Lindelof is that he knows how to set up ideas, but never how to pay them off. Yeah, they never build to anything. I think it's again that thing of working on TV. Mm-hmm. If you're used to writing ongoing things, yeah, that never really have proper endings, or they always lead into something else, uh, you're always going to suffer from that because you're not trained at dealing with a good three-act structure i mean the thing that they always say is that the journey matters whereas the destination does not mm. which i don't really agree with because if your destination is somewhere like stoke-on-trent yeah it doesn't matter how i get there it's gonna be awful and it's weird as well because <laughs> when you read any screenwriting book they always say the opposite the destination is the most important thing because if there's yeah no, if there's no place where you're going then the journey doesn't really matter because if you're leading towards a shit goal, then what's the point in the journey in the first place? Exactly, yeah. Sort of thing. So they've both got to be as strong as each other, but you can't have one without the other. No, no, you can't. And in fact, I would say many films live and die by the last 10 minutes Mm. because that's the last thing that you remember from a film that you've watched. So that's going to colour your opinion of pretty much 90% that preceded that ending Mm. and many times you hear people talking about a film being terrible just because the last 10 minutes were bad Mm. and i think this falls into the same trap almost but i i actually i like some of the ending stuff i like some of the fights but my issue is that i think the middle of the film lags a little Mm. but Um, i I would definitely say this is a film where i feel like the first half of the film is much stronger than the second definitely definitely yeah i would agree i'd say um once you start getting into the second half that's where i start to have problems Mm. Once Olivia Wilde's character is revealed to be who she is, yeah, that's where the film starts to fall apart for me. Yeah, And I actually have some quotes from the writers on the making of the film because they actually, like we spoke about, they set out to make a film that was a Western first and a sci-fi genre second. So here we have a clip from Damon Lindelof who's talking about the writing process making 
Cowboys and Aliens. You know, one of the challenges for Cowboys and Aliens was trying to figure out who was going to direct this movie, who was going to have the right sensibility. And there are, there are multiple ways to approach it, but I think where everybody sort of agreed was this needs to be a Western that has aliens in it versus a science fiction movie that has cowboys in it. And obviously, the tone of the movie is everything. So you want a movie that takes itself very seriously in terms of that the stakes are real, but also it has to have the ability to have a sense of humor without ever sort of winking at the audience and breaking the reality. And we started kind of talking about what are movies that demonstrate that kind of a tone. And I think Iron Man was at the very top of everybody's list. You know, this was a movie that was not only highly successful, but it sort of rebranded Robert Downey Jr. As a, as a major movie star, but it also sort of was fun to watch, but at the same time it felt like it was a comic book movie without feeling too comic booky. And so John Favreau was really at the very top of a very short list. And we sent him the script and he responded to it. The challenge of sort of making a Western for him was sort of first and foremost, but he he just got it on every in, in, in every way that a director should get it. So that's Damon Lindelof talking about Cowboys and Aliens. And just to back up some of the things that he said, I've actually got a quote from Robert Orsi as well. And he says the first draft was very kind of jokey and broad and then it went very serious you kind of swing back and forth between the two extremes and the tone until you find the exact right point where a western and a sci-fi movie can really shake hands without it seeming unnatural imagine you're watching unforgiven and then aliens land also explains but i mean one of the things i want to mention is that the right direction for this kind of film is it enough to make a western film that has aliens in it because he talks about the two genres shaking hands i never think they actually do no because the sci-fi elements in cowboys and aliens are very peripheral to me yeah for me i mean the whole idea of aliens coming into this western arena is rather lazy the way that they actually do it the two genres that they've chosen are very disconnected from each other it's just a basic alien invasion story there's nothing really creative about it because for me i think one of these things that would have made it a much stronger film if they'd gone if someone really creative had gone whole hog and literally just fused the two things together fused the western and the sci-fi together yeah and made a proper mashup of this genre because i think doing it like this yeah one's gonna be more peripheral than the other so it becomes neither of you the film, whereas if they literally did a proper hybrid, I mean, there's even fucking TV shows that have done this better, like cartoon series that have yeah. done this better, where they've they've made like sci-fi cowboys and stuff like that, and especially with the name Cowboys and Aliens, which is in it's intrinsically goofy and silly. You need to have something that kind of matches that, whereas this is very much a a po-faced western. Yeah, it's like Unforgiven, yeah, but it's very straight-faced. Yeah, it's like Unforgiven, but not as good. <laughs> and um i mean that's where quite a lot of the criticisms come from as well as the fact that yeah. it's, a, it's a very serious western but it's not an amazing western but the alien bit doesn't add anything more to it so it yeah. ends up becoming quite mediocre but yeah i feel they really missed a trick here and they, yeah just the, i think what happened was i think they were thinking they were more creative than they actually were with this concept because yeah. this concept you could go anywhere with it but what they ended up with was quite run of the mill really there's nothing that makes me go, oh, wow, this is different, even though no one had ever really done this before. Obviously, having aliens and cowboys together in a film, like a mm-hmm. motion picture like this, but how they went about it is really not very exciting. I was left kind of thinking that because they ignored the sci-fi elements for such long periods of the film, that I wanted it to be more 
of a western mm. and i do wish that they actually just stripped the film back of its characters so it was more of just a two-hander maybe with harrison ford and the young buck going to find these townsfolk much in the same way as like a sergio leone film would be and it was like much smaller i, yeah, I kind you, of wish it was just a much smaller more focused western film yeah, with you needed, no sci-fi elements yeah you needed it to be like a buddy picture really you yeah needed, like just two main characters even going back to what on paper looked fine even when you look at indiana jones and the last crusade that's essentially what that one is yeah you could have had a similar dynamic here where it's those two characters going through on their adventure and they're both completely different you've got the younger man and the older man and they don't quite see eye to eye and that's where the essence of the story is yeah there's so many other characters in this that that gets really lost and to be honest harrison ford and daniel craig they don't have that much screen time together they don't say that much to each other. No, and one of the things in a commentary that John Favreau says is that he wishes that they did have more screen time yeah. together. Because he mentions at the end they start working together trying to uh, kill the big bad alien at the mm. end. And afterwards, you get the sense from John Favreau that he knows they dropped the ball in that regard mm. because he was left saying, oh, God, you know what? I wish, I wish we had more things happening with these two characters. And that's right, because those two characters work together. Yeah. I think if you drop all the kind of amnesiac elements to Jake Lonergan and just make him this ex-con trying to go straight yeah. while you've got this Harrison Ford character, maybe even make him more of a lawman, that ex-lawman. Yeah. So you've got some kind of uh, grift between them. Essentially playing the same two characters, they needed more of them together, button yeah. heads and getting things done. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you've got Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford together in a film as the two leads, and they don't spend much time together, so they just waste it. Yeah. That whole dynamic that could have been created is just wasted. Mm-hmm. And the, the screen time that is there is wasted on much less interesting other characters that don't need to be there in the first place. There's, there's a massive long list of people that don't need to be in this film. I think one of the main ones, and I, I know we spoke about Sam Rockwell, but there's another character in this film that really doesn't need to be there, and that's Olivia Wilde's character, and she plays... Ella. Yeah, and she plays Ella. Ella Swanson. I was going to say Ella Enchanted, but... <laughs> <laughs> but she plays Ella Swanson, and uh, there's a midpoint reveal in the film where... It's actually revealed that she's an alien. We think she's dead, but no, she's actually a an alien that's been captured by these creatures that go from planet to planet, yeah, yeah. taking their gold and uh, essentially like robbing them. Yeah, they're essentially space cowboys. These aliens. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, they, and, they and tried uh, making it like frontiersmen. Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. She's escaped from them, and she's trying to help these people to kind of overcome them for what mm. these aliens did to her people. Mm. I mean, that's, it sounds very convoluted when I see it, but the film didn't need her, and all she's there to do is just spout exposition at times. Once it's revealed who she is, she's only there to really tell the characters what these aliens are, what they do, and, I mean, do we ever get a sense of why they're doing it? No, yeah, but the other thing as well, this um, really reveals how uncreative they were with the structure and how what they wanted to do with the story. She is the literal get out of jail free card when it comes to defeating these aliens because all she's there for at the end of the day is to be in that spaceship and destroy that spaceship from the inside sacrifice herself so the spaceship basically blows up yeah that's the only reason she's in this film i'd say there's another slight reason it's one we spoke about on uh, best forgotten movies before and that's because it's a real sausage party this film oh totally so yeah. you've got to throw a woman in there to make it you know to, to give these characters the not gays. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that's it, really. And that's all she's really treated as, as well. Yeah. Is to just be 
a love interest. I really like Olivia Wilde. I think she's a great actress. Or Miss Cockburn, as we <laughs> as she's known in in regular life. Yeah. <laughs> what a name. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> this film really underuses her. She's really underutilized. But I think again, any of the people in this film or any of the ideas that represent this whole sci-fi element of the film are just underused themselves yeah and, and just to speak about the aliens as well you, you said that they're meant to be like frontiersmen that comes through quite well mm. that they're almost a representation of the cowboys themselves yeah like a twisted representation of them but we never really do find out who they are where they've come from no or what their deal is we just get a vague idea that they're evil and i guess and their plan's really boring yeah we're gonna get the gold i mean why are they taking the people as well I Why no are they idea. kidnapping people? No idea. Then that's not revealed at all. Because at the end of the day, when they find all these people, they've just been hypnotized by this globe thing. Yeah. And it's like, why do you need all those people? Yeah, you're going to experiment on a few of them, but why do you need all those people? Mm-hmm. It's weird. They're just there. Th- to be honest, it's one of those things as well. This is how lazy the script is. They're only taken to give some of these characters some sort of motivation in order to go after these aliens. Yeah. Because some of these characters because they do nothing and they have no real interest about them they need these characters being taken away in order to give them any sort of impetus to actually be in the story in the first place i imagine in one draft many drafts ago that was what the film was concerned about it they weren't there for gold they were there for people Mm. and then that got changed along the way but the story forgot to change as well yeah yeah (laughs) I guess these are the kind of things that get overlooked when Mm. there are so many writers and so many different creatives involved in making this type of film. Yeah. And it's so obvious in retrospect, though, to look at it and say, why? Mm. And I think this is where this film suffers because once you start asking a question, why are they doing this? It falls apart. Yeah. And you get a real sense of how flimsy the sci-fi elements are. Mm. They just function as mechanical parts of the script. There's nothing more to it. Olivia Wilde's character, like we say, is there as a get-out-of-jail-free card. You just said it yourself. And even these aliens are just there to be bad. Yeah. I like the thematic choice of them being twisted representations of the cowboys themselves. Like, they're being confronted with something that they were or something that many of them still are. Yeah. And are forced to really take that on. But... Again, that's me just kind of extrapolating yeah. from the, from the film. It never really plays on that. It yeah. never really plays on the idea that these really are evil representations of them. It's because they have no personality. Yeah. There's no personality to these aliens. There's no... Um, I mean, they're so forgettable as aliens. I mean, looks-wise, and there's nothing really distinctive about them that hasn't been done already. You know what they reminded me of, looks-wise? What? The grasshoppers from A Bug's Life. <laughs> They actually yeah. did. I, I could, that's all I could that think and, of. That uh, and Crazy Frog. <laughs> <laughs> another. Th- I mean, this is going to be another thing. And this is just filmmaking. They did work better when they weren't shown. Mm-hmm. And um, well, John Favreau actually says that he preferred them when they weren't shown. And some yeah. of his best shots are where you only get to see glimpses of yeah. them. Yeah. And it's just a shame that they are obviously pressured into showing them as yeah. usual. And they at least would have made us some sort of. They would have just been threatening. They still wouldn't have been very interesting, but they would have been threatening all the way through because mm-hmm. after a certain point, especially in the end battle, I wasn't interested in that part of the story no. at all. Again, this is going to be one of those films that we really get into and we're always going to keep coming back to the script because mm. that's where it falls apart. And one of the next things that I want to talk about as a character is Daniel Craig's character, Jake Lonergan. Is it necessary for him to be an amnesiac? 
does he really need to have this kind of mysterious past that means nothing really for the rest of the film? Because the setup with that character is he wakes up in the middle of the desert with this um, mechanism attached to his arm, well, his yeah, wrist. Yeah. And later on we find out it's an alien device that he uses really to um, defeat the aliens themselves. Yeah. He uses against them. And all the while, throughout the film, for at least half the film, he's trying to figure out just who he is yeah. and where he comes from. And it's revealed that he's actually a con who's um, stolen a lot of gold from people. And him and his wife have been kidnapped by these aliens and his wife has been killed. I mean, that's that's like revealed at pretty much the halfway point of the film. Oh, it's revealed before that because the main problem with this amnesiac characters that everyone else seems to know who he is anyway yeah <laughs> so there's no fucking point to him being amnesiac because everyone else just tells him who he is yeah and he's in trouble within about 15 minutes anyway because they know that he's wanted and the whole mystery just goes away straight away and it's only really him as a character himself not the audience yeah that he's only him as a character that's trying to rediscover who he is the audience already knows what kind of character he is yeah so there's no point in having that element there and they don't play in it any further no because there's not even a jason bourne type element where jason bourne's really confronted with who he was before he lost his memory and the decisions that he made to become part of that program Mm. in this film it never really plays on that at some point during the end there's some vague reference that something he had done had gotten his wife killed but he never really seems upset by no, that they, fact they, and he's already moved on yeah before he remembers who the fuck she is yeah they don't do anything with it because you could have had the thing where this guy's done terrible things yeah and it's been this situation that's made him turn over a new leaf and try and make up for yeah all these things that he's done in the past and obviously it's got his wife killed or his girlfriend they've never really established whether it's his wife or his girlfriend but they do nothing with that yeah they do nothing with that character in that aspect because it's been done so recently with Bourne, I don't know why they needed to do that anyway. Yeah, it's it's such a real obvious trope that doesn't need exploring any yeah. further than, than it already has yeah. been in films. Just make him an, a normal character and your main character doesn't have to have some quirk about him, like some story quirk that we can frame the whole film about, like, oh, he's trying to discover his past. You know, it doesn't need that. Just provide us with a solid character that, as an audience, we can really get into and really dig our claws into and say, this is what we want to see. This is somebody that interests us. Yeah, because to be honest, it would have been better if they ditched any backstory with him and just had him as like that man with no name character yeah. and him strolling into town. That would have been just better because you'd have just played off the personality of the actor and, mm-hmm. and things that are going on. You wouldn't be lumbered with all this baggage that yeah. isn't necessary anyway. Well, I, I like the idea that you just said before about let's keep him an ex-con. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let, let's keep him a con. Let's keep him a bad person and then make, during the course of the film, he's confronted with being a bad person. Like, then you physically make these aliens a representation of himself. Yeah. You know, and it's him confronting himself throughout the entire film. That's what the film's about, is he's um, claiming something good back by confronting these evil representations of himself. Why not make the film about that? That's that's far more interesting. It doesn't... Because the thing that they've confused here as writers is an interesting character with interesting presentation. They think that, oh, if we make the presentation interesting, if if we make the framing interesting... Mm then that's it, that'll do it. But they forgot about the character. And that's the thing. They don't really justify why he's an amnesiac and what that matters, really. No. And 
I would say as well, that little wrist device that he has, that alien device, that's another. It's just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, totally, yeah. And, and they don't really use it until the very end of the film. And the thing is, for that particular character, for your main character, it gets rid of any sense of danger or threat to yeah. that character because you know he's always going to get out of it because he's got that gun. Yeah. There's no point in the whole film and the only time when he's under any kind of threat is right at the end and we know that he's going to get saved anyway because we've just seen Harrison Ford go out of frame to get to him. So we know that he's going to come in at some point. Yeah. So even when he's having that showdown with the, the Uber alien, whatever they call him, the, the yeah, one the that's Uber slightly alien, different, yeah. you know that he's only going to be in danger for like a couple of seconds because we know that Harrison Ford's on his way. So even then we don't really get any kind of sense of threat or danger to that character, and we don't feel anything. Even knowing that, and I think it's probably just because of Daniel Craig's performance, even knowing that, that scene is probably one of the best scenes in terms of threat there is in the film, because he is helpless. Yeah. Just even for the 30 seconds that they actually indulge that, he yeah. is completely helpless. We know that Harrison Ford's going to turn up, but... I think Daniel Craig really sells that scene as well. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, everybody in this film works really hard. Like, everyone does their bit really well. Yeah, they do. It's, again, it just falls back on this script issue. This is all down to script. Mm-hmm. All these problems. Because these writers are lazy and they've got so many get-out-of-jail-free cards, there's no tension in this yeah. film at all. Because you always know that they're going to get out of any situation they're yeah. in. Because once they've used it, like, three times... You know that that's going to be the solution for any problem that they come mm. across later in the film is, oh, he's just going to use the thing on his wrist. Someone's going to save him at this point. Mm. You needed a moment where, I'm going to use a quote from Bad Boys 2 here, yeah. but you needed a moment where shit got real. Yeah. And Cowboys and Aliens doesn't have that moment. No. I think if you get rid of that fucking device that he's got in his hand and you make the character more about his wits and his intelligence yeah. and about thinking his way and fighting his ways out of situations with his strength and intelligence, then you start to make a character that we can really get into and stakes that we can start to feel. Yeah, because the weird thing is you do get those moments where he's resourceful. Yeah. But they're all with the cowboys. There's no element with the aliens where he does that. It's all no. on his own turf. He's smart and resourceful and tough on his own turf, but when it comes to dealing with the aliens, the writers don't know how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And the best they come up with is the dynamite on the ship. Which yeah. is basically just there to get the aliens angry at them. Yeah. Uh, that's the only part, really, where the Western and the sci-fi bit really meet. Mm-hmm. And even then, it kind of doesn't make much impact because they don't really do anything. It just makes the aliens annoyed. But that's the only time in the whole film yeah. where those two things really cross over. But... <sighs> Again, we have to go back to that central theme. Is this particular idea that we're talking about, is this way of doing things, is this the strong enough way to do this concept? Because we keep going back to the idea of it being a Western with these peripheral sci-fi elements. And we're talking about how to make this bit better. But at the end of the day, is this particular direction that they went in particularly strong enough to carry a film or make it interesting enough to make it feel different? And obviously, when we're talking about Hollywood, they're always scared at things that are different anyway. So in terms of us wanting a film that's <laughs> out there and really interesting, yeah. that would never get made anyway. No. no but um, And one of the reasons why the sci-fi and the Western elements don't marry together is because the writers never hit on the right tone. And so it needed to be 
as goofy as the title almost. Yeah. It needed to be as fun as the title. And the film that I kept on going back to in my head, and it's a completely separate type of film, but I kept thinking, oh, it needed the tone of that. It needed this feeling of a ragtag group of people really going up against the odds. It needed Guardians of the Galaxy. It needed something like that. Yeah. So it needed that kind of tone it to sell it. It needed to have fun with it. The sequence that works the best out of everything is the first alien attack sequence. The whole section of the film from where um, Percy is fucking around and confronts Jake for the first time to when they're locked up to when the aliens attack for the first time. Yeah. That's the strongest part of the whole film. There's some really nice bits between those two characters. I like one of my favorite bits of the whole film was when he's taunting Jake when they're both in the cells and he sort of beckons him towards him and then just pulls him towards the bars and knocks him out with the bars. Yeah. And I remember when he was in the cinema, everyone laughing at that part. And that's where it really, it has fun with it. Yeah, it does. But it does. After that, it, it, everything gets too po-faced again. Yeah. It's because they're too busy trying to honour the Western. Yeah. Like, uh, the legacy of the Western. And to be honest, John Favreau does make a legitimate Western movie at times. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it really does feel genuine. But it's not really the type of film that this needed to be. It, it, it either needed to be a Western or it needed to really embrace these kind of goofier elements, these funnier bits, these mm. infuse it with a bit more humour. Yeah, and we, we just needed more crossovers as well. We needed people being altered and having you know we've got one weapon yeah that's alien that's it mm -hmm. we needed more of the crossover between the two elements yeah you know people have been converted into other things well, and i thought that's so what they were doing that. the first time i saw it because and this is talking about the tone again at some moments it's uh funny like it's got a couple of funny moments in it and there's also some uh quite a lot of violence as well and a lot of it is done in a kind of absurd funny way in almost a comic booky way but then you've got scenes like Daniel Craig's wife, Alice, being operated on as she dies. And you can see her body kind of twitching. And it, oh, mm. it reminded me of the um, the drawn and quartered scene from Braveheart, where you can hear her being kind of cut open and stuff mm. like that. And her gut's being taken out while she's crying. And Daniel Craig's looking at that. That was upsetting. Yeah. And completely out of place in this mm. type of film. But when I was watching it, I thought that's where the film was going to go. I thought it was going to do more than that, more with that. Mm. But it never justifies it. It never justifies why it's there. It never takes that element anywhere. You never find out why they're being operated on, what the aliens are trying to find out about them, and nor is any of the information that the aliens gain from cutting us open and looking at our insides. Never is that used against our characters. No. There's so many things that you could have dealt with, even with the setup that you had at the start. I mean, the probably the best thing now is to talk about, because we've just mentioned him, is probably talk about the character of Percy. Yes. Which is... Harrison Ford's son, which is played by Paul Dano, and he just disappears from the film entirely. He's set up quite strongly at the start of the film, and then just gets captured in that opening action sequence, and uh, we don't see him again for another hour. For me, what should have happened, and I was talking about fusing some of these more sci-fi elements together, I was expecting people to be converted or something into like a an alien-human hybrid or something like that, where this character would have changed but then would have become the character that he was supposed to be in his father's eyes. Yeah. But then it'll have been too late for him. You need to have some sort of arc there that was more central to the story for that character yeah. because all that happens is he's a weedy character. He gets captured. We don't see him again for an hour. And when we get them again, he's sorry. Yeah. And that's all that happens for that character. And it's such a waste. Such a waste for Paul Dano as well. Yeah, because Paul Dano is great in the beginning of the film when yeah. we first see him and i was excited for where they were gonna go with that character mm. 
and they just kind of disappear him from that yeah. point and he gets taken away and then he disappears for the rest of the film mm. and it is it is such a waste and you do get a sense that there are a few characters here that have been wasted while other characters have been given plenty of screen time mm. and i spoke again about sam rockwell's character i love sam rockwell as an actor i think he's one of the best unsung great actors at the moment as mm. well he deserves more than what he's given and he yeah. ends up in films like poltergeist which are such yeah. a waste of his talent they squander his talent and he is a talented motherfucker but in this film he doesn't work for me because no. that character doesn't really do much he has a couple of funny lines here and there but i i don't really care about that character and there are plenty of these characters in this ensemble that don't really need the time and don't really need to be there mm. I think it should have been focused, stripped down, stripped back, focused. You get rid of the kid as well. The kid's only there to represent kids, to be something that kids can yeah. look at and get into. But Played by Last Airbender Kid. <laughs> yeah. It, who I learned this morning it was homeschooled. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking he's got some worrying parents there. <laughs> but um, the only um, person I thought should have been there was... Dollahide's other surrogate son. Adam Beach as character, Beach's a Native character. American. Yeah, I, I liked that part of that it. That relationship is the strongest relationship in the film. Mm. And I don't even know if it's in the theatrical version as much as it no, is, no, is in the extended. It, it should have been, yeah, it should have been emphasised more, That actually. should have been the film for me. Yeah. If we talk about this film being about fathers and sons and stuff like that, you could just have made it about Harrison Ford and Adam Beach's character mm. going off to find his legitimate son, his actual biological son. All the while, you've got this other character with him that's that he doesn't treat that, that he well. doesn't treat well, but still sees as a son. Yeah, that but, seems like a very Clint Eastwood type character. Yeah, and as well. it really ends up being his real son in the end. Yeah, but yeah, make the film about that. Ah. That's, that's so much more interesting. And I liked the the fact that this was a character trapped between two worlds because obviously he was a Native American, but yeah. he's been on the the white side so much that he uh, lost connection with his native side. And when the Native Americans they when they join up together, he's kind of the bridge between the two worlds. Yeah, and he's the one that makes both sides see sense and work together. That's the only relationship and the only. Ca- characters that really work in this film and the thing is i'm left sitting here thinking i want more of that and the fact that he's performed so much in the story in, in that aspect and that he's a peripheral character yeah is weird oh yeah he's profoundly overlooked yeah the film's dealing with a lot of ideas and most of them are just half baked mm. and half assed and it's just another script like that. We keep mm. on coming across these type of scripts. We came across it with Waterworld. We even came across it with Virus. We came across it even worse so with Slipstream. And we've got it again here is that they're just dealing with all these different ideas. And some of them are just real sci-fi or Western tropes that go nowhere. Yeah. But others like this really hold the attention. But it's just lost. Yeah. And they ruled out in favour of the general Hollywood cliches, yeah. i.e. the kid. The kid was so useless in this film. There's no point in having that. But do we blame the writers for things like the kid and stuff like that being in the film? Or is it the producers? Because this seems to be a symptom of Hollywood. Oh, definitely, If it was yeah. the same writers every single time, and with, to be honest, Orsi and Kurtzman, it often is. But um, if it was the same writers every single time that were doing these things wrong, then we could say, yeah, it's the writers. But we've got it across many different films from different studios and different writers yeah. where they all have these elements because it's what the film has to have. Yeah, it's that thing like, oh, we've got to have the kid, but you can't spend too much time with the Native Americans. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. You know, it's like that. Because um, 
that was one of the more interesting parts of the film is the fact that yeah that the central theme is i mean even the writers put this it's like you're talking about enemies working together to overcome a, a common enemy there's so many interesting things you can deal with which they kind of deal with but again because there's all these other bits and pieces going on doesn't really come forefront and, and center yeah it's kind um, of lost because yeah. of the film's so unfocused yeah i really want to home in on the performances for a moment now i know we spoke about them briefly just before but i really want to talk about harrison ford and daniel craig in this film mm. and we've talked about it being bond and indiana jones again in this kind of film it's a shame really that they don't make more of that because the performances are really strong from these actors mm. and like say everybody across the board is really given the film their all and specifically for Harrison Ford, this feels like something of a breath of fresh air for him mm. because it is playing about with his grumpy persona mm. that um, everybody sees in interviews and stuff like that, <laughs> which it seems that Star Wars has kind of rejuvenated him and he seems a much more fun and bubbly individual now mm. in interviews. But yeah, for a yeah. while, he was just this kind of grumpy, grumbling man in interviews and, yeah, and, yeah. and this film plays on that and i think it really comes across quite well i like that his character and in the way that harrison ford plays it he's got a past and he's got a danger to him mm. we feel like he could do something bad to anybody at any moment mm. because that's who he is and not care about it and harrison ford plays it really well it's just a shame that that character doesn't really go anywhere no because they build him up really well, because we don't actually see him for about 25 minutes. Yeah. And he's talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. So when he does get here, his impact is quite strong. But then, because of the problems with the Paul Dano character and the problems with his other surrogate son that don't quite come into any sort of mm -hmm. fully formed idea, his character suffers because, yeah, he's got nowhere to go mm -hmm. after that. But in of itself, yeah, the performance is really quite strong. And it's, yeah, it's nice to see Harrison Ford having some fun. Yeah. Legitimate fun as well. It's nice to see him play a character like that that's age-appropriate for him. Yeah. Uh, because he became a star so late, because he kind of looked younger than he was at the time, mm -hmm. he always kept getting cast in roles that were too young for him. And obviously, most indicative is when they tried doing Indiana Jones again. Yeah. And tried setting it in that world that, where it was age-appropriate, but then not changing the character enough to suit that no um but this is a character that does work and that seems to be something that they've actually remedied with the new star wars film i know yeah, we haven't yeah. seen it so we can't really talk mm. about it but one of the things that i've heard them talk about is making this han solo a different type of character than the han solo we've seen previously because yeah. the last 30 years have changed them as a character mm. I like the idea of that. That seems to be playing exactly into the type of thing that we see here with Cowboys and Aliens, mm. is that he's playing an age-appropriate character in an age-appropriate way. Mm. But even so, I, I like that we get to see Harrison Ford in action in this film. We get to see him riding horses. We get to see him running away from aliens. We get to see him shooting guns and killing people and stuff like that, or killing aliens. Uh, not <laughs> I people. love Harrison Ford killing people. Well, Indiana Jones kills every motherfucker he meets, apart from Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls, where he kills no one. <laughs> And that's awful. Yeah. And that's why I like to see. It's, there's a real sense of fun about him. And it's clear that he can still do all this stuff. But because his character feels more like a real Harrison Ford character at mm. that point in his life, yeah. it works. I think if the film embraced the humor a little bit more, his yeah. character would have softened a little bit. Yeah. But I don't know. I like his character in this film. I like the way that he plays it. Yeah. Again, it's just 
it's just overlooked. Mm. No one character has really done justice in this film. No. Because there are so many ways you can take a few characters from this film and make a film about them. And it seems that the writers have decided to have their cake and eat it too and just have everybody mm. have all of the ideas. Let's have the kid. Let's have the amnesiac. Let's have the old gunslinger. Let's have the Native Americans. Let's have, you know, it's like, mm. let's have this issue with fathers and sons. Let's have this. Let's have that. And they've just kind of like loaded it with everything, but not given anything the time to breathe. Another thing as well is Daniel Craig is in this film. I really liked him in this film. He's fantastic, actually. Mm. I, I really like his accent as well. His accent works really good because I think he doesn't talk that much. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I actually wrote in my notes earlier on, and I'm not sure whether it's because they shot this in sequence or whatever. I actually thought he was struggling with the accent at the start when oh, he was right. speaking less. Yeah. But then when he started speaking more and louder, it came across better. Yeah. But when he was speaking sparingly... Which, ironically, was when his character worked the best. You get slight hints of his actual accent in there as well. Ah, go it yeah. wasn't quite getting there. So I wasn't quite sure what happened there. It's strange, because Daniel Craig is someone that's always had an issue with accents. I remember when they were making the remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, mm. and everybody speaking with these false Swedish accents. They had Daniel Craig drop his because he couldn't quite nail it. Yeah. And he's always said that. He's, I think he said that he's had an issue with accents. So... Knowing that and coming into Cowboys and Aliens, I was quite surprised that, oh, wow, he's actually nailed it quite well. Yeah, but yeah, it just it, the accent starts to work better, but then the characterization is not quite as good when he starts speaking more. <laughs> I think that's an issue with the script, though, because yeah. although I like Daniel Craig in the film and in that kind of lead role, I don't like the character. No. They don't really do much with the character. I think there's potential to do things with that character. But they don't really cash in yeah. on it. Because it would have been better if they'd gone down the Clint Eastwood route of having very little for him to say. And yeah. Just having it all on being the strong and silent type. Yeah. He was actually cast, not because he looked like Clint Eastwood, but rather because he looked like Steve, Steve McQueen. McQueen yeah. yeah. And you can see that. You can yeah, really see that. But definitely. the thing is about Clint Eastwood and looking at the Sergio Leone films is, I guess, it, again, it's in the writing, maybe also in some of the performance. But Clint Eastwood managed to exude so much charm with so little and i don't think daniel craig's given the opportunity to do that in this film but you never get a sense of uh, you never warm to his character yeah. he's always cold and distant i think it's just yeah down to the writing where it doesn't quite get there or at least it does work for the start and then uh, just veers off because there are some really nice bits and one of the other best scenes is again another paul dano scene is when he's he wants to shoot jake lonergan yeah, uh, but then ends up shooting away and hits yeah. somebody else. <laughs> hits the deputy. Yeah, <laughs> which is great. And yeah. that's a real proper Clint Eastwood, uh, man with no name, tough mm-hmm. as nails scene for Daniel Craig as well. So it does get there occasionally, but it just isn't consistent. Yeah, and I do like that scene as well, where Paul Dano and Daniel Craig are handcuffed together. And <laughs> once again, he decides to break Paul Dano's hand yeah. in order to free himself from the handcuffs. It's, a, it's in those moments the character really comes across well. Yeah. I wish there was more of that in this film. Again, if Paul Dano was in the film more as somebody that you can really kind of punish Yeah, he the should film, have been a whipping boy. Uh, yeah, through. as a whipping boy. It, it, it would have given the film the outlet for those characters to do those funny things. Yeah, because that's where the comedy goes, because... That's where all the comedy was. Yeah. The relationship between those two characters. And it would have been nice to have had them all play off each other. The really other great missed opportunity is because Harrison Ford's got this horrible, wimpy son. 
and you've got yeah. this Daniel Craig, they share no screen time together as a three. Mm-hmm. You don't get any dynamic. That would have been a really fun, interesting dynamic mm-hmm. to see those three play off each other in terms yeah. of their relationships, and we don't see any of that. No, no. <sighs> <laughs> Such a missed opportunity. Pooey writers. Okay, and to move on to the filmmaking side of things, I want to talk about the aliens themselves and how they looked. You described them before as being quite unmemorable and i just want to elaborate on that further because john favreau mentions that they used the alien and the predator as inspirations to design these alien characters they wanted something as iconic as that but considering that we get to see these creatures as much as we do i never really got a sense of what they look like i mentioned before that they reminded me of the grasshoppers from a bug's life but i can think clearly now of what those grasshoppers look like I could draw them if you wanted. Yeah, yeah. And I could crudely draw sketches of the alien and the mm. predator, but I couldn't tell you what these look like. And you see far more of them in this film. I can't tell you really what these aliens look like. They're almost like cockroachy things. It's strange that the alien has so little time in the first film. We only see glimpses of it. And yet its image is so defined in my mind. Mm. And yet these creatures are seen in broad daylight. And we do see a lot of them. But I couldn't tell you what they look like. They're nowhere near as iconic as their inspirations. No. The most I can say is they look like Neil Scanlon designs because I know we see the big bad up close. That reminded me of Cloverfield, the Uber alien. Yeah, That yeah. reminded me of Cloverfield. Yeah, it did. Again, and now I'm thinking of Cloverfield. I forgot what he looks like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I don't think we've had any really great alien designs for a long time. Mm. In a way, I feel like with a lot of aliens that are not memorable usually because they're too complicated yes they're too intricate because obviously although the alien has a lot of complicated surface work going on the actual shape of the alien it's got is a quite distinctive simple. silhouette yeah that's the thing that's what you can draw mm. yeah and in just in terms of its simplest shape if i draw you a picture of the alien you know exactly what it is yeah with the whole elongated skull and everything mm-hmm. whereas with these it could be anything yeah could be a cockroach it could be crazy frog could be any kind of (laughs) could be any kind of amphibian that said as unmemorable as they look the quality of them in the way that they're realized there's some great work from legacy effects that was stan winston studios Mm -hmm. and ilm do a great job of the daylight scenes in which we see the cgi mixing with the live action horse battles at the end of the film that looks great in terms of the quality of what we're seeing yeah it's just that the aliens themselves are just so unmemorable yeah so i really want to commend the special effects side of things because ilm are usually on the top of their game Mm. and uh, legacy effects are fantastic as well i wish there was more practical effects in this film with the aliens there's only one real scene that i can think of and that's in the upturned steamer where um, the kid character is attacked by one of these aliens Mm. that's the only scene that i can think of where it really makes use of practical effects Mm. yeah the characters are really well rendered but this is where I kind of feel for the, the SFX guys when they do this because it's one of those situations that they shouldn't have to be in that position where they have to have an alien like that going around in broad daylight because yeah. it just doesn't look good. I mm-hmm. mean, no matter how well rendered or how well done those characters are, that is not a situation where they should even be in No, because all of the effective moments of the aliens in this film all take place at night. So the mm-hmm. whole opening sequence with the aliens arriving yeah when you see an alien but you don't see it you just see its tracks yeah and you'll see its shadow 
and then the whole bit in the steamer those moments are far more effective than anything else definitely and John Favreau does mention in the commentary that they're his favourite moments with the aliens he almost sounds like he's been forced into showing yeah. more of them than he actually wanted to yeah I don't, I don't feel this is a John Favreau failing because i think this is just a studio thing. no and, and again i want to say that the film looks great everything from john favreau looks great mm. one of the remarkable things is that it's actually shot on film mm. and he was being pressured at the time to shoot the film digitally because obviously avatar came out and in 3d yeah. and in 3d yeah. and he was being pushed to make it a 3d digital film and he really stuck to his guns and said, no, no Western should be digital or 3D. It mm. should be film. And he was absolutely right. That was the right choice. And it, the film looks great for mm. it. I love that you can see some grit on the screen as yeah. well. It feels like a legitimate Western in the way that it looks. Definitely, yeah. I really like John Favreau as a director. And one of the films that I really want to cover on Best Forgotten Movies, and something we are going to cover in the future, is Zathora. And again, he's working with the same special effects crews mm. as well. This is a guy that knows how to shoot practically. He knows how to shoot CGI. He still makes use of miniatures as he does in Cowboys and Aliens. Yep. When the ship lifts out of the ground at the end of the film, that's all miniatures augmented with CGI. People overlook this these days. I mean, I can't remember the last big budget film I saw that actually made use of miniatures. So to see one like Cowboys and Aliens that only came out in 2011 still making use of them, that's great to see. Yeah. It's great to hear and it looks fantastic. Yeah. The other thing as well is that this is a guy who knows how to use the effects in a restrained fashion. I mean, yes. we talk about, okay, there are problems with having the aliens in the daylight, but what surprised me watching again today was... Um, how restrained everything is in terms of the action, in terms of what he allows the special effects to do. Yeah. Because everything's, although we've got flying spaceships and stuff going around, a lot of it does feel quite grounded. He never lets it get silly. In no. That sense. There's no shots where I go, I don't fucking believe that. Yeah, yeah. And even like when Daniel Craig's on top of the alien ship trying to save yeah. Olivia Wilde. Well, he spoke about that in the commentary. I know I keep going back to the commentary. But um, during that particular scene in which Daniel Craig is on top of the ship, the studio was pushing him to make the canyons around the ship bigger so it makes it look like they're moving faster and stuff like this. But he, he kept on really kind of trying to reinforce that bigger would make it seem less real. Mm. And he, he really stuck to his gun. He said there are a couple of shots that the plates that we used that we augmented with CGI to make the perspective change somewhat. But we kept them largely as what they are and made them look how mm. they are because we didn't need, like, the Grand Canyon. We didn't need it going through the Grand Canyon. We needed it going for a real environment. Mm. And that really shows in this film, that kind of thinking, because a lot of it does feel real and a lot of it really meshes together really well. Yeah. And that's why I, that's why I like John Favreau. He's really got keen sensibilities when it comes to making films. And yeah. they're the kind of sensibilities that are being lost as the years go on. Yeah. What is he working on at the moment? Oh, The Jungle Book. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Jungle Book. I'm a little bit iffy about The Jungle mm. Book because it's entirely CGI. And I watched the trailer recently. And obviously, the animals have to be CGI. I think the quality of CGI in the trailer is fantastic. And considering that all the environments are rendered in a computer, it looks great. Mm. But I don't get a sense that this is a John Favreau film. No. Although, what I'm going to say on this thing, and I think I may be proved wrong when the film comes out, I think the trailer that's been released may actually win the award for being one of the most unrepresentative trailers of any film yeah. I've ever seen. Because when you read about how they're going about this film, this is a film that has all the songs from the original Jungle Book 
and will have that feel. But from the way they try and market it in the trailer, it makes it look like a serious action po-face film. Yeah, it's a grim, like, dark reboot. Yeah, dark retelling. Yeah. When it's not going to be anything like that. And even like the last shot in the trailer... Is him when whistling gets, the bare necessities. And it's like, that's the only bit that feels so out of place yeah in the whole, i said the like, same thing and that's what the film's gonna be like yeah i wouldn't really judge that off the trailer no i wish john favau didn't make that film because i'm really really iffy on these live action remakes of these films anyway because these are just films that are gonna be so forgotten yeah as time goes on they're so unnecessary mm-hmm. and they're just there to make money yeah that i kind of wish he wouldn't get caught up to be honest i'd rather he make more films like chef than, I than, would than yeah. do films I like think that, Chef really. has issues but it feels like a John Favreau film yeah. and the characters come across really well there's some great character work it's a very entertaining film and my issues aside it works really well yeah it feels like a personal film mm. and I guess it is as well because essentially Chef is about John about Favreau ho- working in, in Hollywood. Hollywood yeah we're very stuck in this moment in time where you've got directors like this that should be doing big original films yeah, but they're not allowed to because the studios won't let anybody no. make a big original film anymore. Whether that'll change or not, I think it will. But at this moment in time, we're kind of stuck with it. Hollywood goes through cycles. Yeah, we know that. We spoke about that before, and the cycle will change. And sooner or later, it will become something that will harness the abilities of creatives like John Favreau. At the moment, it's not really geared towards them, and hopefully, it won't leave them behind. Hopefully, they'll still be about when this cycle changes again mm. and allows for them to really bring their talent and their visions to life. We've just got to wait for this cycle to change. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So as we're wrapping up on Cowboys and Aliens, I think I've got to ask you the question now. Would you like to see a John Favreau Star Wars film? Is that something that you would be interested in? Absolutely. A lot more than I want to see a Colin Trevorrow Star Wars film. <laughs> oh a my God, so, so much more. Yeah. A lot more. See, Colin Trevorrow is, for me, and we keep talking about Colin Trevorrow, but he is almost the opposite of John Favreau. He is the new guy that's this yes man that's yeah. uh, dealing all this stuff out that the studios want. I'm not really saying anything against Colin Trevorrow, but he's like a pawn in all of this. He's their yes man to, to yeah. do their bidding. Whereas John Favreau... Obviously, some of his films aren't perfect, but you can always tell that he's battling against the, this system. And you get more of his personality. Yeah. There's no personality in Jurassic World. No. I like Safety Not Guaranteed, so I like half of Colin Trevorrow's filmography. Mm. I hated Jurassic World, and I yeah. think it represents everything that's wrong with Hollywood at the moment. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm still, I'll still give Trevorrow the benefit of the yeah. doubt, but I'm not excited, really, f- no. to see his version of Star Wars. I would be a lot more excited to see John favreau bring his personality to star wars yeah and even as in one of the anthology films a star wars story like rogue one where he just gets to be himself and he's not tied down to any particular story you get to bring one with him and create one i would like to see more of that and but as much as i'm saying this you know what i would just be excited to see a big budget john favreau film that wasn't attached to any franchise yeah because i like john favreau and I think the industry needs more filmmakers like him. Yeah. His films aren't perfect, but they're a damn sight better than these kind of cookie-cutter studio pictures. And I would take that every day of the week. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're starting to form some opinions about Cowboys and Aliens. I think we know why it's been forgotten. But mm. just how forgotten was it? And how did audiences and critics react to it when it came out in 2011? 
Well, it's time to move on to the stats and facts. So first up, let's move on to the critics. Just what did they think of Cowboys and Aliens? Okay, so based on Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> we have a uh, tomato meter of 44%. So that is rotten. And it's got an average rating of 5.6 out of 10, which I'd say is fair. I'd probably give this about a 6. Yeah, I would. A 6 out of 10, something like that. I'm not really upset by these numbers. I, mm. I think it's roundabout in line with what the film presents because it is a missed opportunity. Yeah. And uh, Roger Ebert, he actually gave quite a positive review of the film. He gave the film three out of four. And he goes on to say, the movie will no doubt be popular and deserve success, which he's kind of wrong about. Um, <laughs> as preposterous moneymakers go, and uh, yeah, moneymakers, it wasn't one of those. It's ambitious and well-made, which is fine. The acting from the large cast is of a high standard. Craig and Ford are more or less born into their roles. And director John Favreau actually develops his characters and gives them things to do instead of posing them in front of special effects. Which he does do. It's just unfortunately he's got too many of them to deal with. Yeah, and the characters aren't as well drawn as yeah. uh, as we would hope them to yeah. be. But he goes on to say, Yeah, I feel a certain small sadness. I wish this had been a western. You know, the old-fashioned kind, without spaceships. Daniel Craig, cold-eyed and lean, plays a character familiar in the genre. Think of the Ringo Kid or Doc Holliday, bad guys who rise to goodness. Yeah, that's what I wanted to see. Mm. That's what I really... I want to see it play more on that. Yeah. Empire gave it 4 out of 5. They said it was a simple entertainment in a summer of overcomplicated disappointments. Yeah. Also, much harder edge than you may have expected. And the IMDb score is 6 out of 10, so I think that's actually quite fair as yeah, well. Yeah, I'd say uh, all of that's quite fair. They are definitely favourable reviews, and I think they're perhaps a little bit too favourable. I would be perfectly fine giving yeah. this film like a 3 out of 5 score. And I think 6 out of 10 on IMDb yeah. is about right. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't say that this is a film that's been misunderstood. No, it's no, it hasn't. It's been received exactly how it should have been, yeah. in a way. I think had the extended version been released, it may have favoured a little bit better with the overall Rotten Tomatoes rating. Yeah. But yeah, I can't really argue with that. But dude, they would have lost a cinema showing. <laughs> oh no. That's so important considering how much money they made. <laughs> and now to talk about the box office. Now, if you remember earlier on in the episode, I actually called it one of the biggest box office bombs of all time. Mm. But is it? Is it really? Mm. Well, the budget was $163 million. Domestically, it made 100 million. Foreign, it made 74. So, worldwide overall was 174 million. So, again, that's against a budget of 163. That is a rather significant loss. Mm. I think John Carter made better numbers than that. Yeah, because we were failing to factor in the marketing budget, which is usually yes. more than the film these days. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's probably lost about at least 150 million. Yeah. And you have to ask as well, if they would have stripped off those sci-fi elements and made this film for about half its budget, trying to get these actors, yeah, made a much more focused Western, would it have still made these numbers? Because I kind of think it would have, with yeah. those stars. Yeah, and you probably would have made a lot more money back. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that was the wrong way to go. Yeah, you could have made a, a decent Western for about $80 million. Yeah. And the film opened number one at the box office that week with $36 million. But let's list some of the films that it opened against. It opened against The Smurfs, Captain America, The First Avenger. So, I mean, we've spoke about it today. <laughs> yeah. And that film went on to make just under $400 million. I think yeah. uh, 350 overall. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Part 2. Yeah. Crazy Stupid Love, 
friends with benefits, horrible bosses, Transformers, Dark of the Moon. Uh. I mean, oh my god, Transformers, Dark of the Moon. It, <laughs> this is its fifth week of release. It made six million, and overall, it had made to that point three hundred and thirty-eight million at the box office. Domestically. Domestically. Fuck. So you can see why a film like Cowboys and Aliens <laughs> would fail. Zookeeper and Cars 2. Cars 2 at that point had made 2 million that week. It was its sixth week of release and it made 182 domestically overall. So, I mean, even then, it sounds like a lot of merchandise and franchise films. Yeah. For a film like Cowboys and Aliens, it's definitely going to fail. Yeah. Okay, so that leaves me to just ask the questions. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Um, Are you any closer to understanding why Cowboys and Aliens has been forgotten? Yep. Me too. <laughs> it's that I mean, hard. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it's that round. It's just because they had this title and they didn't make a film that reflected that title. It's as simple as that. And the script lacked any kind of focus. So I, I can see, in all, it made for a middling but enjoyable film mm. that left no impact whatsoever that's why it's failed yeah and finally and this is perhaps one of the tougher ones is cowboys and aliens one of the best of the forgotten movies or is it simply best forgotten i'm probably going to say best forgotten because this is a film that although it displays certain qualities especially in the western genre it is a film that's so confused about what it wants to be. Yes. Even though it's got some really good Western bits, it's a half-baked Western. Yeah. And uh, because it's, it's got to put all these sci-fi elements in, but because the sci-fi elements are so peripheral, they're half-baked too, and they're even more half-baked than the Western bits. So yeah. it kind of gets nowhere in justifying any of these genres that it's trying to mash up. Although the skills of the filmmakers, especially John Favreau and the actors and the technical people involved, are really top-notch, it's because of that script. It yeah. just all falls down because the script just isn't solid enough. And we keep saying this time and time again, where the script is all over the place. And uh, they've just, I mean, this one that's just gone through too much development in a way. It's gone through too long a development yeah. where they've lost where they wanted it to go. The vision has been lost. Or maybe it's been in development that long on an idea that wasn't that strong in the first place. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it fails in, in all those areas. And unfortunately, it's all that talent and technical know-how and performances have all been wasted because the, the final product does not match up to their abilities. Yeah, I have to go back to how I first started this episode, which is by really reassuring the listener that Cowboys and Aliens is an enjoyable film, but I can't see myself calling this best of the forgotten it is best forgotten mm. and that is simply because despite the efforts of john favreau and the incredible crew that he has he's still working with material and a script that is incredibly and profoundly wasteful it has no clear vision the writers clearly do not know what type of film they want to make and unfortunately it does nothing with the premise and that is why I have to say that this is best forgotten. And it does pain me a little bit because it's clear that Cowboys and Aliens is a well-made film based on a kind of terrible script. Mm. I call it terrible because there are elements in that script that if the writers just gave it the focus and the attention that they demanded, then it would shine. But they miss it entirely. And it is lost in a soupy mess of a film. Mm. So, yeah, I have to say, Best forgotten. Mm -hmm. 
And that's all we have time for on today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies. So get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. You can also follow me at the underscore mince on Twitter. Join us next week for the final episode in our Star Wars trilogy as we're watching a genuine Star Wars film. But which? You'll have to join us next week to find out. Ooh. But for now, it's bye from myself and sayonara from Andy. Bye. And in the words of the great Alec Guinness, live long and prosper. <laughs> that is the one, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Okay, see you next week. Bye.